Crime Salad listeners, we're your host, Ashley and Ricky, and we're here with another episode of Crime Salad. If this is your first time, welcome. Before we begin, we would like to let our listeners know about our new designed merch. It can be found at crimesaladpodcast.com slash shop. We worked with an amazing artist by the name of Carolina. You can follow her work on Instagram at Carolina underscore draws underscore. If you would like to help support Crime Salad, share our podcast with a friend and give us a five-star review on iTunes or any platform you listen to podcasts on. Because it's prom season, we have a story to tell you that might have you second-guessing your prom date or maybe having you rethink your prom date a few years ago. No, but seriously, this is something you don't often hear too much when you hear about prom stories. Especially when prom is a time for excitement with your friends, picking out that special prom gown or a well-fitted tux. It's what you look forward to up to senior year. And to some, it's just one of those things you definitely can't miss out on. So keep in mind, things you may hear in this episode may bring some discomfort, but that's expected. This is Crime Salad, a true crime podcast. Sometimes we bring that to the table along with the side of mysterious OMG stories. Well, this is a murder mystery case, bringing us back to the mullet hair days. It was spring of 1989 in Lakeview, Indiana. Robert Jeffrey Pelly, known as Jeff, is 17 years old. Jeff is the son of a pastor whose name is Robert Pelly and goes by the name Bob. Bob served as a reverend at the Olive Branch United Brethren Church in Christ. He was married at a time, and together they had two kids. They had a son named Jeff, who's 17, and a daughter named Jacqueline, who's 10. Unfortunately, Bob lost the mother of his children due to cancer in 1985. It really took a toll on the kids when they lost their mother. A few years later, Bob met a caring, loving woman named Dawn. Dawn was a widowed woman who had lost her husband to an illness as well. Dawn had three beautiful daughters with her husband before he passed away. Their names are Jessica, who's nine, Janelle, who's eight, and Jolene, who's six. Bob and Dawn fell in love, and soon they got married and adopted one another's children. The two have similar interests in life with religion. Trying to raise a family with good morals despite the obstacles of having a blended family and the differences that usually come with it. They're trying their very best. Losing a biological parent would not be easy. With that being said, things weren't always perfect at the Pelly's house. The loving parents Don and Bob did have their hands full. As Bob is a pastor of the church, he's known for being strict with his kids. I wouldn't say abusive, but strict. And in his eyes, the children were expected to be perfect, especially being they are the children of a pastor. Out of the group of kids, the biggest handful was Jeff, Bob's son, the oldest of the kids at 17. Him and his father were constantly at war. Jeff was always rebelling against Bob's parenting roles. Jeff was at the age where he was seeking independence, and on top of that, if you could only imagine, losing his mother in the previous years 
could cause him to resent his new stepmother, making a relationship with Jeff kind of difficult for the whole family. So at this point, Jeff was not making very good decisions his senior year. Recently, he got into trouble from stealing. As punishment, senior prom was approaching, and his strict father planned to put an end to Jeff's behavior. So he did something he knew would get through to him, enough to teach him a lesson. Bob didn't allow him to attend prom or any activities relating to prom whatsoever. This would include dinner before prom and the exciting day after traveling with a group of friends to a favorite theme park called the Great America Amusement Park in suburban Chicago. On top of that, Jeff also lost driving privileges to his Ford Mustang. This process wasn't easy. Bob meant business. To make sure his rebellious son wouldn't break the rules, Bob even suspended the insurance on the Ford Mustang and left a note with the insurance company which said, Jeff is grounded from using the car and all vehicles in the household. And this really caused a battle between the two. And I can only imagine the actual conversation going on in that house. Arguments were heated. Jeff threatened his father saying he would be leaving home after graduation and never coming back. After days of back and forth arguments with Jeff and his dad, there was just weeks until prom. Bob was finally giving in. He was allowing him to attend prom, but only under one condition. He can attend prom night, but only prom night. This meant no pre or post prom activities were allowed. His only form of transportation would be if his dad drives Jeff and his prom date, Darla, to prom. To add, Darla was not happy about this. Jeff told Darla he was working to change his dad's mind so that he can at least go to dinner before the dance. That Friday night before prom, Jeff calls Darla to share some good news. He tells Darla his dad is letting him off the hook, and he's meeting her for dinner before prom. Wait, so just like that he's off the hook and he can go to prom? I mean, wasn't Darla like a little suspicious about this? I'm sure she knows how strict his dad is. Yeah, I think Darla was surprised, but she was probably just excited Jeff could go to prom and didn't question it. Or maybe Jeff was planning to sneak out. Either way, I think Darla just wanted Jeff to be able to go. I mean, whenever I was 17, I remember sneaking out to hang out with you. Wait, what? You snuck out? Yeah, once or twice. But knowing what I know now about missing persons and true crime, I would never do that. But you turned out okay. Yep, not a serial killer. It was Saturday, April 29th, 1989, and it was the day of prom. Jeff worked the early shift at McDonald's. He washed his car, and around 4.45, he finished the baseball game he was watching. That afternoon, the Pellies were all at the parsonage. A parsonage is a church house provided for a member of the clergy. Family friends started to come by to visit with their kids dressed up for prom. Don and Bob's daughter Jessie and Jacqueline left for the weekend visiting friends, so they missed out on all the prom stuff. One of the visits was a senior named Kim. She came along with her mom and noticed there was some tension at the house during their visit. She also noticed that Jeff was wearing a pink and blue shirt with jeans. He wasn't dressed for prom and he seemed quiet. After all, prom was a touchy subject at the Pelly's house. Some time went by and the visits were lessening at the Pelly's house. Group pictures were finished and most of the kids were off to dinner to enjoy their night. Jeff calls Darla and lets her know he's running a little bit late. He stopped at a convenience store on his way, 
and then once he arrived at Darla's house, he quickly changed into his tuxedo, took a few pictures, and then both couples left with Darla and another couple for dinner. It was set to be a good night. At this time, there was a last-minute visit from a family friend with their daughter, Crystal, who was dressed in a beautiful prom gown. The family was hoping to visit with the pastor and the Pellies before she ventured off on her prom night. They were actually expecting the Pellies to show up at their house, but they never did, so they stopped by instead. But something was off. They approached the front door, noticing that the blinds were drawn, covering the windows of the house, and all the lights were off. They knocked on the door, but there was no answer. They waited around for a good 15 minutes, but there was still no sign of the Pelly's family at all. They thought this was odd because Don and Bob's car was still in the driveway, but they did notice that Jeff's Mustang wasn't there. At the senior prom, everyone was dressed their best. Music was playing and everyone was having the time of their lives. Crystal, the girl who was last to visit the Pelly house, saw Jeff. Jeff then noticed Crystal and asked her if his parents ever came by to visit. Crystal told Jeff that they never showed up and they were not home whenever they stopped by their house. After the dance, Jeff changed out of his tuxedo at a friend's house and went to an after party at a bowling alley. He asked to join a slumber party at a friend's house for the night along with several other friends. I think it's important here to note that Jeff basically invited himself. Could this be because he didn't want to go home that night? Yeah, maybe. Now remember, it's 1989. Kids didn't have a cell phone back then for their parents to call and check on them and the ability to know where they were at all times. So wherever his parents are or whatever's going on, he would have to wait until he gets home. It was now Sunday morning, the day after prom. Jeff and Darla left their friend's house as they were getting ready to leave for the theme park. Jeff spoke with Darla's mom as they were getting ready. She mentioned that she was surprised to see that he was going to the theme park and that his parents were allowing him to go. Jeff joked and he said he had a two-day pass from the Pelly prison. They then went to the theme park. After some time at the park, Jeff grew quiet and told Darla something was wrong and something didn't feel right to him. Something just wasn't right inside. Back at home, it was time for church. Members of the Olive Branch were gathering for a Sunday service. The church was filling up with familiar faces and people dressed in their Sunday clothes. But the pastor of the church, Bob Pelly, didn't show up, and the rest of the Pelly family never did either. So how often does a pastor not show up for church? I mean, I'm sure it's happened, but that's got to raise a red flag. You're right, and it did. This specifically wasn't like Bob at all. He was the type of person to always be on time. A few close church friends went to the parsonage and found the doors were locked and the curtains were drawn. It was dark. No sign that the Pellies were even home. A close member and a friend of the church had a spare key and they entered the house. We're going to take a quick break here to tell you about better help. BetterHelp is an online service that I personally use for my mental health. They provide a number of professional licensed counselors who specialize in all situations that may be interfering with your happiness. It's seriously my personal outlet to get my mind right. It's affordable. It's so convenient. I decided to give BetterHelp a shot when I was going through a very anxious part of my life. So I just signed up and I was matched with an amazing counselor who was so willing to talk with me right away. 
We actually set up a video chat later in the week to catch up. We are all so busy. Give yourself the care that you need today. Start living a happier life. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash crime salad. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crime salad. They slowly walk up the stairs to check the bedrooms and at the top of the stairs, they see something horrific. It was Bob's lifeless body laying in the upstairs hallway, lying on the ground with two gunshot wounds, one in the chest and one in the neck. They call the ambulance right away, and once they arrive, paramedics look over the rest of the house. They search each bedroom, the kitchen, the living room, and still nothing. And then, finally, their search ends in the basement. Their light on the cold floor was the bodies of Dawn, Janelle, and Jolene huddled together in the corner of the basement. Each of them were shot in the head at point-blank range. Dawn, the mother, had been shot in the temple. Janelle, who was eight years old, was shot in the forehead. And Jolene, who was only six years old, shot just below her right eye. And they all seemed to be shot by the same weapon. At first glance, police assumed that this was a murder-suicide, but there is one problem. Bob was shot twice. But couldn't Bob have shot himself once and then finished the job with a second shot? I mean, or it could have even been the mother. Well, a huge red flag that stuck out to investigators was that there was no gun ever found on the scene. So it was ruled a homicide. And another thing, the Pellies were found with everyday clothes. Not pajamas, not church clothes, so it had to be sometime during the day. Yeah, so it had to happen the night of prom, or at least before church. Police found no evidence of force entry, but when they searched the house, they did find a small load of laundry inside the washing machine, consisting of a pink and blue shirt, blue jeans, and socks that had been through a wash cycle. And if you remember, this was a clothing that Jeff wore that Kim noticed the day of prom. And it makes sense that they were never put in the dryer because he had to leave so quick. A luminol test of the washing machine cylinder was inconclusive, indicating either a reaction of blood or it could have been the phosphates found in the laundry detergents used in 1989. The only other discovery investigators made was that Bob owned a 20-gauge Mossberg 500 pump-action single-barrel shotgun, but mysteriously it went missing. And after searching the house, all they found was an empty gun case behind some sleeping bags in the basement. And as a matter of fact, investigators never found the gun or any shell casings, but they did confirm the gun wounds were definitely from a shotgun. Just to recap, when they discovered the bodies, Jeff was at an amusement park north of Chicago for a high school prom celebration. Jackie was at a church camp for the weekend, and Jesse was spending the night with a friend. When Jesse first came home, she thought something happened to her dog because of the police cars in the driveway. Although that would have been tremendously sad, unfortunately, it was much bigger than that. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. That's how young and innocent she was that the worst thing in her mind was her dog being injured. Jeff was then located by the Illinois local authorities who told Jeff and Darla about the murders of his family. They were taken to the local station for further questioning, 
Jeff came off as surprised, but not sad. During the ride home, Jeff said over and over to Darla that he didn't do it, and he kept asking her if she believed him. Red flag alert. Just got a comment here. If you found your dad, stepsisters, and stepmom dead, why would you immediately start defending yourself? Why would you even think you need to deny killing them? That really doesn't look good for Jeff. I'm sorry. Around 4.45 a.m. on Monday, May 1st, police conduct a videotaped interview of Jeff in the presence of his maternal grandparents, who had arrived from their home in Kentucky. Jeff explains to police what he did the day his family was murdered. Jeff said he left his home at 4.45 or 4.50 p.m. on Saturday and stopped at Casey's gas station because his car was idling too fast. He made a repair with some cardboard from his car using his key as a screwdriver, and proceeded to Darla's house. At 7 p.m. on May 1st, later that day, Jeff gave a second statement. Jeff again gave his version of the event, stating that he stopped at Casey's gas station because of car trouble. But by this time, the police had learned from Darla that Jeff called from an Amco station. When questioned about the discrepancy, Jeff became nervous and upset. He said he had stopped at Casey's, but had also stopped at an Amco station because it had tools. When questioned again, he said that he stopped at Casey's to buy a pop and proceeded to the Amco station. The detectives told Jeff that he didn't accept his story because pop was available at both stations. The detective then told Jeff that he believed he was involved in the murders and that the car trouble was just part of a way to cover for a time gap. Jeff slumped down in his chair, lowered his head, covered his eyes, and asked if he could see Darla that night, or if he was going to be in jail instead. Jeff also asked something that seemed concerning. He asked if there were some things that led up to what happened, would it make a difference in what happened to him? The state presented sufficient evidence from which the jury could conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that Jeff committed the four murders. Evidence of motive access to a weapon of the type used, and presence at the site were all established. Alternate explanations seemed implausible. The home was locked, suggesting a person with a key had been on the scene, and Jeff's account of activities at the time were inconsistent. And they also noted that Jeff seemed flustered during the video recording interview, which maybe he did do the crime, but that's a lot of pressure for a young kid, especially when he lost his parents. Looking back, Jeff's stepsister Jessie said memories of Jeff weren't so pleasant. He did things like shoot her cat with a BB gun. And there were two separate occasions where she was in a tent sleeping with her friends in the middle of the night, where Jeff unzipped the tent and threatened to throw her in the pool. In another occasion where she was taking a bath, he walked into the bathroom, turned the hairdryer on, and threatened to throw it in the tub. So if these stories that Jessie told were true... Jeff is hiding a very violent background. Jeff was always the leading suspect in this murder case, but he was never arrested or charged. There just wasn't enough sufficient evidence. No murder weapon was ever found. No fingerprints linked Jeff to the crime itself. Although Jeff still remained a suspect because there wasn't any other suspects in this case. The case was left cold and not fully solved. Being that they didn't have much evidence at all, the case just kind of went cold for the next 13 years. The blended family was now so broken. 
those surviving kids had to grow up without any biological parents at all. I can't even imagine how these kids felt. 13 years after the murder in 2007, the case reopened with a new lead detective taking on the case. Suspicion was still pointing to the oldest son, Jeff's involvement. During this 13-year gap, Jeff Pelly moved to Florida, he developed a good career, married a loving wife, had a child, and he was teaching Sunday school. He appeared to be living a very normal life. During the trial, Jeff said, I loved my family dearly, and I have lived my life trying to pattern my life after my father. I would not, I could not, and I did not do this. He said this through heavy sobs in the courtroom. Prosecutors alleged that during a 20-minute span on April 28, 1989, the day his family was murdered, Jeff shot his family members, disposed of the shotgun and shells, took a shower, put his clothes in the washer, changed his clothes, drew the blinds, locked the doors, fixed his car at the gas station, and left and went to Darla's house for pictures and then dinner for prom. However, there's some people that don't agree with this and say that there's no way you can do all of that in 20 minutes because there's surveillance video of him at the gas station and his prom date is a witness and he was with Darla just minutes after the murder. She says that he wasn't even acting strange. So even to this day, there's still a lot of back and forth if he did it or not. So the convictions were based on circumstantial evidence, supporting the state's theory that Jeff, who had been grounded from the events connected to his high school senior prom, killed his father in order to attend those activities with his girlfriend and he killed his stepmother and stepsisters because they were present when he killed his father. So about the two remaining sisters that are still living, Jessica wrote a book called I Am Jessica, and even though she was nine at the time of her family murder, she believes Jeff did it. Her book can be found on Amazon, and it talks about Jessica's traumatic childhood and everything she's gone through when she lost her family. She went from having a normal life and a happy childhood to losing so much. There's another side to this case, Jeff's other sister, Jacqueline. She believes he is innocent to this day, and she started a website in supporting his innocence called justiceforjeff.org. The website has been made an effort to help free Jeff. A few points they make on the website is the crime scene was never checked for any fingerprints, and it claims police ignored many leads shared by the community. The Innocence Project took on this case in 2009 and are still working on the case, but prefer not to discuss any details of their work or their findings. Could this have been a wrongful conviction? You decide for yourself and let us know. So this concludes the story of the prom night murders. If you're interested in learning more about this case, you can find pictures on our website at crimesaladpodcast.com and also on our Instagram at crimesaladpodcast. Help support Crime Salad by leaving a five-star review on iTunes or whatever you listen to podcasts on. Remember to follow us on Instagram and be sure to tell a friend about Crime Salad. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you again. Crime Salad is a true crime podcast delivering a healthy portion of crime. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. All the blood, blood, all the pain.